many of us here, perhaps the majority of us here, have had occasion to uh, engage in signing certain legal documents. Now, we're not really into that. I'm sure there are some people in our world who are dealing with legal documents every day. That's not our normal activity, but we've been called upon to do that. Maybe when you're buying a house or buying a new car, you have to sign certain legal documents. And you're aware of the fact that when you get into those kind of legal documents, there's a lot of definition of terms. This means this and this means that and so forth. And it's all laid out there. In fact, lawyers have a lingo of their own, right? Uh, we even call it legal ease. They have their own kind of language. And if you get involved in, a, in signing some kind of a contract, you very well may see that legal ease as they are defining all the technical legal terminology. Uh, really, defining the terms uh, of a legal contract spells out what's involved uh, and it's necessary so that the parties who are agreeing in this contract know what the terms means and know, and know how the contract is going to be carried out. You've got to define your terms, right? Well, let me tell you, our relationship with God is not, it is absolutely not like a legal contract that might be drawn up by lawyers. It's not a legal contract. And the Bible, of course, is not written in lawyer language. It's not written in legalese like lawyers speak. But I want to tell you, there is an agreement between us and God that needs to be achieved And there needs to be an understanding of the terms that are involved in coming to this agreement with God. And we want to talk about defining terms. And this morning particularly, we want to talk about a very important word when it comes to this agreement that mankind is to have with God. It is a word that is too often misused and misunderstood. We want to talk about some wrong ideas that people have about the very elementary subject of faith. What about faith? We want to talk about that in our study this morning. We stop here just briefly to say thank you for being here on this beautiful Lord's Day morning. We're glad that you're here and glad for the opportunity to join together in the worship of God, study of His Word. We're glad that you're here to be a part of it. We have visitors with us today and we're always grateful for our visitors. We want you to come back every time you have a chance to be here. If you have questions or if we can help with Bible study or in other ways, please let us know. We thank you for being here. Please come back when you can. Let's talk about faith and what's some misconceptions that people have about faith. One of the basic misunderstandings that people have about faith is that faith involves making a blind leap, a blind leap of faith. Mark Twain, who was a a famous skeptic, said this. This was his quote. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Did you catch that? He says, when you have faith, you know it's not true, but you believe it anyway. That's what he said. Others have used this terminology as just a blind leap. You don't think about it. You don't try to reason it out. You don't, you don't consider things. You just say, I'm going to believe. I don't care. I'm just going to make that blind leap of faith. And I'll tell you, that is just absolutely not true. The kind of faith that God wants us to have is a kind of faith that is based upon a reasoned and logical consideration. It's a a conviction and a trust that is taken based upon overwhelming evidence. I want to stress that. There is overwhelming evidence that the things taught in the Bible are true. 
And, and so when we believe, when we have faith, the kind of faith that God wants us to have is not a blind leap. It is actually a reasoned decision based upon evidence. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 beginning verse 16 says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. I want you to stop right there for a minute. And notice, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. I think the Apostle Peter was aware of the fact that some people might say, Peter... Come on, man. You have just gullibly believed everything that you were told. You have just swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. Peter, you, use your head, man. How could you believe this stuff? Peter says, no, that's not the case. We have not. We have not followed cunningly devised fable when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory... This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. And so Peter says, it is not the case that I, I was just told a fairy tale, some fable or myth, some legend, and I believed it. That is not the case. Peter says, when I tell you what I'm telling you, I'm telling you what I saw with my own eyes. I was an eyewitness. We were with him. Now, the episode that Peter is talking about there specifically, of course, was the Mount of Transfiguration, right? When Jesus was transfigured, when Moses and Elijah appeared with him, when God spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was just one incident. Peter observed a lot of other incidents and he wrote about them, spoke about them. Peter, of course, was an eyewitness to the resurrection. Peter said, I am not just telling you folklore and legend when I tell you about Jesus. I'm telling you what I saw with my own eyes. I was an eyewitness. The Apostle John said effectively the same thing. In 1 John 1, beginning verse 1, that which was from the beginning, notice, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, of the word of life, for the life was manifest, we have seen it and bear witness, and, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard, notice, we have seen, we have heard, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, John here is stressing eyewitness status. I was there, I saw it, I'm telling you what I saw. And in his gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 30, Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Notice, these are written that you might believe. John says, I was an eyewitness. I saw it. I experienced it myself. And the things that are written here are written specifically for the purpose that you would come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so again, he didn't say, I just want you to accept this. I just want you to believe it no matter what. Just take that blind leap of faith. No. He said, I was an eyewitness. I saw these things myself. And what's written here is written for the purpose of convincing you that these things are true and that you should make a decision to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's not a blind leap. Faith is not a blind leap, as some people try to suggest. It is a reasoned, logical conclusion based upon a careful examination of the evidence. And I wish people would give us credit for that. You know, the skeptics and doubters of this world think that all of us have just made this blind leap. And they are not even considering the fact that we have studied 
and examine the evidence to come to this conclusion. Faith is not a blind leap. Let me suggest to you also that faith does not come to us in some mysterious way. Very often when we're talking to people in the religious world, they want to convey to us what they would call their salvation experience. And when you think about a salvation experience, what these people mean is that something unusual happened. Uh, Some peculiar thing occurred. They had some strange feeling or emotion that overpowered them. And then they knew that Jesus was real, that he is God's son and so forth. But they, they say that their faith is based upon that experience that they had, that overpowering emotional feeling that occurred, that salvation experience. And very often they will use the terminology that what happened to them is better felt than told. I can't really tell it to you. You would have to experience it yourself. Until you have felt it, you will not know. It's a better felt than told experience. That's how you come to faith. It just happens. You just get it. Suddenly faith is just poured out upon you that God directly imparts to you faith. Well, there's a couple of big questions about that. And and there are questions that the people who explain it that way are usually not able at all to address. How does that happen? Well, I don't don't know how it happens. It just happens. You'll know it when it happens. That's what they tell us. Well, how come it's happened to you and it hasn't happened to me? That doesn't make much sense either when we know that the Scriptures say that God is no respecter of persons. The fact that He would put this on you and that you would have this unique experience, but He's never done that to me and I've never had such an experience. How do you explain that when the Bible says that God's no respecter of persons? There's a lot of problems with this position that says faith is something that just comes upon you mysteriously. And it is not true to what the Bible teaches. In Romans chapter 10, you know this text well. In Romans chapter 10, beginning verse 13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Do you see that progression that Paul uses there in that text? You need to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Well, how are you going to call upon the name of the Lord if you haven't believed? How are you going to believe if you haven't heard? How are you going to hear without someone to teach you? Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The way we get faith is not through some mysterious, better felt than told experience. The way we get faith is by exposure to the inspired word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so that idea of the religious experience, salvation experience, or better felt than told situation, again, that's a misconception. That's a wrong idea about faith. That's not how faith comes. There are a lot of people who have the idea that one faith is as good as another. Now, first of all, we would be willing to acknowledge as a true statement that there are a lot of different faiths out there in the world. Uh, there may be your faith and his faith and the next person's faith and then my faith. Everybody's got, everybody's got a different faith. And so we'd be willing to grant that it is true there are a lot of different faiths in the religious world. But what we would deny as being true is that one is as good as another. That is not a true statement. One is not as good as another. 
in Ephesians 4, in that list of things of which there are only one. There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There's one faith. You see that? There's just one faith. When the word faith is used in this context, it's suggesting a system of religious belief and practice. There's just one system of religious belief and practice that is acceptable to God. There's just one. And so that excludes the possibility that you have yours, you have yours, and I have mine. And that any of them is good, just do what you want to do. This idea of one faith, one acceptable system of belief and practice, that goes against this idea that one faith is as good as another. Why is it so important? Why is it so important for us to find the one true faith of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus explained it well in Matthew 15, verse 9, when he says, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Notice, it's possible to be engaged in religious activity, but it be in vain. In vain means worthless, good for nothing. And your, your religion can become vain or worthless when instead of following the one true faith that's expressed in the Scripture, you follow for teaching the doctrines and commandments of men. That renders your worship and service to God vain, worthless, good for nothing. Do you see how that differs from the common view that one faith is as good as another? That's a wrong idea, isn't it? That just simply doesn't line up with what we read in the Scriptures. It's a wrong idea to believe that we are saved by faith only. In regards to this question of wrong ideas about faith, I, I would argue that this maybe is one of the most prevalent views and very common right here where we live. There are a lot of religious people who think that we are just saved by faith only. All you have to do is just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Article 9 of the Methodist Discipline says, this is a quote, Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. Did you get that? Let me read that again. This is from the Methodist Discipline, Article 9. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. That's pretty plain, plainly stated, not hard to understand. But I want to tell you, it's, it's definitely contradicted by the Scriptures. You know well James 2.24, which says, You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. I suppose people may be weary of us saying it this way, but the only place in the Scripture where faith only is mentioned is this verse. The only place where those two words are found together in the Scripture is right here, James 2.24. And instead of saying we're saved by faith only, it says we are not saved by faith only. That's really very plain. You know the historical example of Martin Luther who believed very much in faith-only salvation, one of the early reformers, and he believed in faith-only salvation. And so when confronted with this statement in James, which is so plain and straightforward, by works a man is justified, and not by faith only, when confronted with that, the, the, the only final explanation that Martin Luther could offer was that the book of James is not inspired. It shouldn't be in our Bibles. As you well know, his familiar or famous expression was the, the epistle of James is a right, strawy epistle. 
And by that, he meant the contrast. The rest of the Bible is like silver and gold, and James is like straw. It's a strawy epistle. That's the best he could come up with, because you can't get around that statement, can you? Now, we don't have time this morning to engage in a long defense of the, the, the epistle of James as, as being inspired. It definitely is, and we can study that more thoroughly if we need to. It belongs in our New Testament. And the problem that Martin Luther and others have is that they don't understand what real saving faith is about. Saving faith is a faith that leads to obedience. It's not faith only or belief only or acknowledgement only. It is a faith that leads to obedience. You have to abandon the notion of faith only salvation and understand what real saving faith is about. Someone says, yeah, but what about Romans 5 verse 1? In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith. There it is. You see it? We're justified by faith. Do you, by the way, I just ask you the question. Do you believe that statement? Do you believe that we are justified by faith? The answer to that is absolutely positively yes, right? We are justified by faith. But do you notice what it doesn't say? It does not say faith only. It doesn't say we're justified by faith only. It says we're justified by faith. There's, there's a difference in that. Because the, the biblical explanation of saving faith is faith that prompts obedience. We've often studied, and we won't take time to study this morning, but he, in Hebrews chapter 11, that famous chapter of the book of Hebrews that talks about great heroes of the faith from Old Testament times. In every instance, it talks about what they did. It says they were people of faith, and then it says what they did. Their faith was explained by their actions. Faith that leads to obedient response in action is the kind of faith that saves. I always like, and we've done this exercise before, but whenever someone brings up this verse in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, justified by faith, what I like to do is look how that is bookended in the book of Romans. At the very start of the book of Romans, it says, We have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. That's at the start of the book of Romans. And at the very end of the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 26, The commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. At both the start and end of the book of Romans, Paul mentions obedience linked with faith. Obedience to the faith, obedience of faith. And so I would tell you that right here in the middle of the book, in chapter 5, verse 1, when he talks about we're justified by faith, which is absolutely a true statement, but the kind of faith that he's talking about there is an obedient faith. And so the very idea of salvation by faith only is a wrong idea about faith. You've got to have faith, but it's got to be an active faith and obedient faith. Let me suggest one more misconception about faith. And it's fairly closely linked to the one we were just talking about. But some people have the idea that we are saved at the point of faith. Let me read you a quote from Billy Graham. Billy Graham wrote a book very simply titled, How to Be Born Again. And on page 156, Billy Graham said, All you have to do to be born again is to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Now get that. All you have to do to be saved. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. 
There are variations on that statement, but that's very commonly believed, that you're saved when you believe. Um, sometimes This expression, accept him as your personal savior. Others would go a little bit further and say you need to say the sinner's prayer. But if you'll say the sinner's prayer, when you say the sinner's prayer, you're saved. But you're basically saved when you believe. And there's really not anything more to do than that. Well, that's not what we read in the Scriptures again. That's a, that's a wrong idea about faith. The very first time the gospel of Jesus was preached, after his resurrection and ascension to heaven, we know of Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, And Peter and the other apostles were preaching and positively affirming that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God and was resurrected from the dead. And so Peter concludes his sermon by saying in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? I want you to emphasize in your thinking that expression, they were pricked in the heart. What would you say that that means? They were pricked in the heart. They had just heard a very strong and compelling sermon convincing that Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and was, in fact, the resurrected Son of God. They were pricked in their heart. I don't see any way that you could conclude other than they believed at that point, right? They believed. They were at the point of faith. Why would they ask the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Instead, why didn't they say, we don't believe that, we reject that, we're leaving? No, they were pricked in the heart. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, you don't have to do anything. Because you are now saved at the point of faith. Peter didn't say, well, you just need to repent. He didn't stop right there. He didn't say, Peter said to them, repent. And accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He didn't say that either, did he? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What did the Apostle Peter, on the very first day the gospel was preached, what did the Apostle Peter say about saved at the point of faith? He didn't say that, did he? He didn't teach that. He taught the necessity, again, of obedient, submissive faith. And so the idea that you're saved by faith only or saved at the point of faith Those are wrong ideas about faith. Well, okay. Uh, We've made five points here. So I said, okay, you made your point. We understand your point. But why equivalent about that? What's what's the big deal anyway? Why does it matter? Why is it it important? Well, I'm going to take you back to what we said in the introduction. Proper definition of terms is necessary. You're not going to get to sign a mortgage on a house until all the terms of that contract are fully laid out and explained. You go to buy a new car, they're not going to sign that contract with you until they have thoroughly defined all of the terms that apply to the contract you're about to sign. If you're going to enter into an agreement, you need to know what the terms of the agreement are. Well, God has called us to make an agreement with Him. It's not a legal contract like the lawyers compose in their special language. But God has asked us to enter into an agreement with Him. And he's extending to us the opportunity to be saved from past sins, to come into a present relationship with him and have the great hope and eternity of heaven forevermore. But the terms have to be understood. And a principal term in this agreement is faith. You must have faith. But you can't have the wrong idea about that. You've got to define it properly. 
or else you may be going in the wrong direction, as many people are. You've got to have the right kind of faith. In the text that Ricky read for us earlier from Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Well, that would argue that this faith business is really important, isn't it? Faith is ultimately important. Without faith, without biblical faith, without properly defined and practiced faith, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. That's why this is such an important consideration. We've got to have the kind of faith that's described and explained in the Scriptures. Do you have that faith this morning? And will you allow that faith to prompt you to be obedient to the Lord? We hope that you will. The New Testament plan is very simply understood, explained and understood. Hear the truth, believe it, repent of your sin, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. That's, all, that's what's involved. It's easy to understand. Will you submit to that plan today? If you need more study, let us know. We'd be glad to study more with you about that. But this is so important. If you're a Christian already and you've slipped back and not been faithful to your Lord, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.